According to news reports, on Friday, February 16th, 47-year-old Alexei Navalny, Russia's most prominent opposition leader who was imprisoned more than a thousand days ago, has died at a penitentiary in Russia's far north, north of the Arctic Circle, at a maximum security corrective colony known as Polar Wolf that's notorious for its harsh conditions. Everyone at Medusa and I send our condolences to Alexei's wife, Yulia, his children, Dasha and Zakhar, his brother, Oleg, his parents, Ludmila and Anatoly, and all of Alexei's loved ones, associates, and friends. Today is a grim day for the millions of people Alexei Navalny inspired with his bravery in defying the Putin regime as he did. Medusa photo editor Yevgeny Feldman spent years as a photographer covering Alexei Navalny, including in 2017 and 2018, when he was embedded with Navalny's insurgent presidential campaign. He describes today's news as the end of a generation's greatest hope. I think Navalny was the only person who could have possibly been such an effective opposition figure in Putin's Russia. And I think that the toughness and directness that was the core of him were the very reason why he was able to to do everything that he has done. Uh, I photographed him for 10 years, and this is by far the most important thing that I have ever most important story that I have ever photographed. And I think that it was a tremendous honor for me as a journalist to be able to cover his story and his activities. Even when he was sent into prison and into the most harsh conditions that are imaginable in Russian penitentiary system, he was available for talking through some, some letters that are sent through the prison electronic system. And even from there, even from the tiny cell, dark cell, he often told me, and I live in Riga now, he often told me to cheer up and to keep on working and keep on doing what I have to do. And I think that this is the most tremendous thing about him, that he was able to cheer everyone around him up, even when he was confronted with the most dire circumstances imaginable. And for me, you know, the day he was poisoned back in August 2020, I was in Belarus and I was photographing how the revolution is being crushed by the police forces and the government forces. And Navalny was poisoned and I got a push notification and I read it. And that very moment I felt that for the very first time, I felt that my hope in better Russia was personalized in him. And that hope almost died then and it died now. I think that for me personally, Navalny was the only thing that kept me believing that there is some possibility of good, nice, friendly Russia that I can get back to. I think that Navalny was like that for many people, and this is truly the end of the 
greatest story we've ever had, the end of the greatest hope we have ever had. As of this moment, Navalny's family says they haven't received any information from the authorities. It's unclear to what degree an independent autopsy will be possible, and Vladimir Putin is reportedly aware of the matter but has not bothered to comment. Sources told the propaganda outlet Russia Today that Navalny died from a blood clot, though this information would be impossible to determine without an autopsy. According to Russia's Federal Penitentiary Service, Navalny suddenly lost consciousness after a walk outside. Guards say they called an ambulance, the paramedics came and tried to resuscitate him, and doctors later pronounced Navalny dead. The causes of death are being determined, the prison service said in a statement. One of Navalny's lawyers, Leonid Solovyov, says he was with Navalny just two days ago on February 16th, and everything then was fine. According to the state news media, an ambulance team from a hospital in the nearest town reached Navalny's prison in just seven minutes and needed only another two minutes to make their way to their patient. The hospital's paramedics took over from the prison medics and reportedly spent more than 30 minutes trying to resuscitate Navalny. A human rights lawyer who spoke to Medusa says the reported speed of this response is highly suspicious, as is the tidiness of the paperwork subsequently filed, suggesting that these documents were prepared in advance. There are many questions about what happens next. Some people are asking how the West might respond and if the news of Navalny's death might revive American efforts to send more aid to Ukraine to defend itself against Russia's invasion. But here are a few more granular and logistical issues. What happens now to Navalny's body? According to regulations, it will be transferred to the morgue of the nearest state healthcare institution. Within 24 hours, the authorities are supposed to notify Navalny's emergency contacts about his death. His body will be stored at the morgue at the public's expense for one week or possibly two weeks if his loved ones can't be reached. Russia's federal penitentiary service is required to conduct what is called a pathological anatomical autopsy, which should not be confused with the more rigorous forensic medical examination. Absent any evidence of a violent end, Navalny's autopsy will be limited to a brief report citing a vague diagnosis for his death, such as general heart failure or blood clot. Russia's investigative committee is also reportedly reviewing Navalny's death for evidence of any unnatural causes. Navalny's loved ones are entitled to receive his body within two days of his death, but officials can delay the body's release by ordering medical examinations. These delays can make it difficult to get reliable results from a potential independent autopsy later on. Last August, The Naked Pravda released an episode titled Why Alexei Navalny Matters, where I looked at the bogus criminal trials that locked him away in prison and how Navalny and his movement changed Russian politics. Here's how Navalny Ideas editor Maxim Trudelyubov explained Navalny's impact. From my point of view, I think he introduced a different kind of politics, which was not common in Russia before Navalny. I wouldn't think of a single politician or even an activist who would act in a similar way or would be taking political campaigning that seriously. He actually designed campaigns with the help of uh, some of his team members. They designed campaigns to be real public campaigns with actually this kind of door-to-door politics with going out there, shaking hands creating branches all over the place and spreading the message. So in a way, I think we could say that it's an American type of doing politics in terms of public campaigning, in that sense, being not afraid of actually walking the walk and getting to the actual people 
he had very little time and the window opportunity, let's say, has always been very narrow for him. But the major achievement was the um, 2013 campaign for the post of the Moscow mayor. They had about three months to start and run a political campaign, and they designed it, they started it, launched it, created entirely new ways of carrying the message across. They invented the kinds of political marketing devices that has been used ever since, by the way, including by the pro-government political forces. So it was incredibly innovative for Russia by the Russian standards at the time. Mm -hmm. You mentioned that he's campaigning in an American style and um, doing kind of like more American or modern marketing, I guess. What are some of the things that you see the regime having borrowed and adapted for itself? Well, again, he had this very shrewd campaigning style, which, yes, they borrowed a lot from that, too. And they continue to do that, by the way. Something they call the smart voting, which is an equivalent of strategic or tactical voting that is used in, in many democracies when you essentially agree to vote against some candidate, vote for someone you don't really want, but to make sure that this person, who is like a really, like a no-go person, gets, you know, voted out. So, yeah, he used it multiple times and achieved some success with that. So that's one of the things. But um, also the important thing and the one that has been borrowed and watched carefully and borrowed again is his media style. So he's been using a lot of campaigning when he could, but most of the time, because of the restrictions and the repression, he mostly had to stick to media. And he used investigations mostly. So they would uncover this or that corrupt practice and publish high-end uh, YouTube version of it. Some of those videos, as you obviously know, had uh, millions of views and uh, one particular has exceeded 100 million views, the one about Putin's palace. They obviously are very jealous for his media style. And uh, what we have seen recently, particularly with the Wagner mutiny and Prigozhin activity, Prigozhin is the guy who's running this uh, mercenary group called Wagner, Yevgeny Prigozhin, the Russian businessman, the Kremlin-connected businessman who had state contracts with various state organizations worth billions of dollars, not rubles, but dollars. Right. So basically, Prigozhin borrowed a lot from Navalny, actually, because apparently he realized that uh, Prigozhin is a very different politician. He's, uh, he's on the other side of the spectrum. He is probably could be described as an ultra-right politician, and he is a nationalist, pro-war, sort of almost jingoist nationalist. And his whole point is to criticize the way Russian government, let's say the Russian political military leadership has been prosecuting the war. So from his point, the leadership has failed in the way they prosecuted the war. They did it wrong. They didn't do it proper. And they did it wrong because they are bad. They are the elites who are criminal, who live in luxury, 
who have all those mansions and palaces right. and send their children to study in Europe, mostly, but in the States as well. This is Navalny's territory, basically. Yeah. So he clearly used uh, that way of inciting hatred towards the, the elite that Navalny used in more standard political way, yeah. like essentially talking about corruption. So he is, for more than 10 years, I think Navalny stayed as a kind of one message, one issue, politician, mostly. But Prigozhin used it as a device in a political campaign that could be described as populist. So in this sense, I think this is what they borrow from Navalny. They, they borrow the techniques, pure techniques, political techniques. They borrow media approaches. Mm -hmm. And this part of anti-elite messaging, just taking it out of Navalny's platform and placing on their own platform, which is right-wing, conservative. They call themselves conservative. The Kremlin and pro-Kremlin politicians love to call themselves conservative, whatever they mean by that. But essentially, they borrow these things to try and build some kind of message that they basically don't really need because they are in power anyway, but they apparently have to feel this void if we look back at Navalny's own investigation of his attempted murder, I think they've started following him since 2017. So, uh, I mean, 2013 was the time when Navalny was allowed to take part in an officially approved political campaign in Moscow. So at that time, they clearly didn't see him as a threat. Right. They wanted to humiliate him and show that he could get more than 1% or 2% of the vote. He got 27% uh, of the vote. They clearly were scared. Since then, he ran many other campaigns in the following years, mostly based on the idea of tactical voting, because there were no real candidates that he could advertise. He couldn't run himself. His allies couldn't run themselves most of the time. So they switched to this tactical voting. And this apparently irritated the Kremlin very much. For analysis following news of Navalny's death, Medusa correspondent Margarita Lyutova spoke to Graham Robertson, a professor of political science at the University of North Carolina at Chapel Hill, where he's also the director of the Center for Slavic, Eurasian, and East European Studies. Dr. Robertson's work focuses on political protest and regime support in authoritarian regimes. And he told Medusa that Navalny's death is part of the Putin regime's total war on liberalism. In, ter in terms of what the consequences might be of this and then the, the timing, you know, it, to try and, and be kind of cold and analytical for, for a minute, the timing is strange, right? Because the elections are coming up and it's hard to see what kind of direct political advantage this brings right now in that context. But what this makes me think is that their disregard for for the elections for the for the for Russian public opinion is so total now that they don't care even about those kinds of calculations anymore they feel like they are entirely robust the, the threat is not from the democratic opposition the threat is not from the streets you know, one of the things that i think we learned from the last 2 years is that the war in Ukraine and the fact that it's taken so long 
And the fact that they weren't successful immediately has been in some ways a, a blessing to the regime. It's given them longer to destroy the remnants of, of, of liberal thinking, of, of, of liberal society in Russia, to drive them out and to, and to drive them underground. You know, this is just another symbol of the fact that, that the war against liberalism in Russia is, is, has no bounds. You mentioned that they probably don't see any downsides to that, but what upsides do they see? So did they or do they regard Alexei Navalny even being in jail as a, as a threat? I think he's always been a threat. I think that, you know, the threat of his message, his, his, I mean, initially the threat obviously was his, his political charisma and his ability to enunciate issues and to articulate issues particularly around corruption. So it's been unmatched. No one has been able to do that since you know, arguably Boris himself, but, but, but not really right in the whole Putin era. And so he was always a threat. And then his, you know, the more charges that they laid against him, the more appearances in court he had, and the, you know, the, the more frankly gaunt and un, unwell he looked, he still retained this kind of bright demeanor, his, 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 his sense of irony, his sense of humor. These are all things that, that give people strengths. Like you would see him do these, you know, core appearances and it would make you feel, feel smile, right? And then and feel courage. And that's, that's a problem. They don't want people feeling courage. And while Navalny was alive and, and able to, you know, encourage people and speak out and, and, and say, don't give up and you, you can't give up. We have to be strong. That was a problem for them and their domination of the minds of the oppressed is, is challenged by that. It'll continue to be challenged after his death. You know, his memory will be strong, I, th I think, for some people. But I, I, I think, you know, the, there's also the possibility of, 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 of sheer hopelessness that they're trying to inculcate and, and, and reinforce and, and doing this as part, I assume, of that, of that strategy. Margarita also interviewed Erica Franz an associate professor in political science at Michigan State University, where she researches authoritarian politics and democratization. In light of many skeptics now saying that the Kremlin stands to gain nothing from Navalny's death, Margarita asked Dr. Franz about scholarly thinking on whether political prisoners can threaten autocrats from behind bars. The evidence suggests that they do remain threatening from jail. I mean, it's much more difficult to organize when you're in prison. However, it also can mobilize people to hear about this injustice that this person's in prison. In situations like Russia, where there's concentrated power, regimes often respond with more brutality than where we don't see that. They become very paranoid. The leader becomes very paranoid, rather. They have no certainty of what their levels of popularity or opposition are. And so they start becoming more open in terms of their acts of repression. So it's not surprising that the repression atmosphere in Russia has gotten worse over the as Putin has gotten more isolated. In terms of who how they decide whether to imprison versus versus murder individuals, I can't speak to that. It it's clear that the regime saw Navalny as enough of a threat that they wanted to to get rid of this situation um, and that they were willing to deal with the small risks involved of doing so. Why and when do dictators do that? 
do they do that when they feel kind of weak and threatened or on the opposite, when they feel they're very strong and kind of can, can do whatever they think they need to do? You know, we'll never know with certainty whether they do these things out of strength or weakness. Many levels, it's a signal of weakness because they would not need to go after these people if it weren't the case that they felt vulnerable. And one of the things that's telling about this is a lot of times we see these sorts of acts of violence against opponents prior to elections. And even though it's near certain that the dictator is going to win the election, they still feel nervous enough that they go to great lengths to silence their opponents prior. You know, no one is going to be surprised who wins that election, but it's just easier for the regime to not have to deal with these challenges. I should add also that sometimes we see these sorts of things happening because the, the moment is opportune for the regime. So the ability, not all regimes have the ability to, to do these sorts of things because they don't necessarily know that their security forces are going to do it. They don't know that they're, you know, these armed young thugs that they have offer, that they have under their hands are going to be able to stay under their wing. So it is on some levels a signal of some strength to be able to repress in this way. But we also know that repression does tend to lead to longer lasting leaders. Now, importantly, in many dictatorships, there are risks of protests when they do things like this. And I'm thinking of Iran, where there have been a number of in incidences in the last 15 years or so, where the security forces has either arrested or murdered somebody under their uh, a protester or just an ordinary civilian, and that that has led to really threatening protests for the regime. That's like the worst case scenario, that those sorts of things will happen. However, the Iranian regime does not have the same clampdown on civil society um, and on opposition voices that you see in Russia. And, you know, there are various reasons for that, but it simply is not as restrictive an, as an environment as the Russian case is, as, it, as the Russian case has evolved to be, I guess you could say, in recent years, particularly since the war. How do you think the death of Navalny can change the political regime in Russia if it can? Will it in any way change how Putin rules? The big problem that's always plagued the Russian opposition is, is, is the fact that there is no coherent movement. If Alexei's death was to inspire a coherent movement, that would be amazing. I think it would also, quite honestly, be surprising. But that would be one way, if, you, if one is looking for some political effects in the medium, short, shorter to medium term, I think, I think that it may have an effect on, on galvanizing unity in the, in, the, in, the, in, the, in the opposition, but I'm not optimistic about that, to be honest. Speaking of political consequences of a slightly different kind, a lot of people in Russia for years have uh, thought about the possible tragedy of Alexei Navalny's death, especially after his poisoning, as a kind of a yeah. point of no return, after which everything is possible, meaning harsher repressions, more political killings, and so on. Do you find it plausible? I'm, I'm, I'm afraid I do. It is quite plausible to see this as the beginning of a new round of even harsher 
repression, more arrests, um, more detentions. It's, it's not at all out of the question at this point, I'm afraid. That's this week's show, ladies and gentlemen. For further developments in this story and reactions to Navalny's death from around the world, please visit Medusa's website. Until next week.